Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Frank, little boys are notorious for inventing things. They spend a lot of time in tool sheds and quietly at the back of the garage and this sort of thing. Sometimes it worries me, particularly with my own child. I wonder if, uh, as parents, we should encourage this or keep a closer eye. Well, I think we certainly should encourage their uh, imagination and their inventive genius, and it is genius too. Uh, quite often the adaptations are bizarre, crazy, and often even dangerous. I'm Neil Denny, and for the past ten years I've presented the Little Atoms podcast. I've interviewed everyone, from eminent scientists to writers and artists, and I've noticed how their worlds have more in common than we think. This, then, is the story of how art and science have influenced each other, and the people, events and places that made it happen. This is Converging Cultures. In this episode, I'm going to look at Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, and the role of electricity in the 18th century, and how new scientific frontiers inspired the romantic writers of the time. But I want to start by looking at just how powerful electricity can be. Rob Weldon is a paramedic in London. Now, it's Rob's job to attend the scene of an emergency. And if someone really needs it, he'll administer a high voltage of electricity directly to their chest to try and restart their heart. Here he is describing what it's like to use a defibrillator to restart a patient's heart. As many times as you do it, there is something a little bit strange and alien about actually, you know, electrocuting someone. It's, it's a little bit bizarre. It's not something you do every day, and it's not something I did before joining the job. They might be clinically dead, so their heart's not beating effectively enough to pump, and they're, they're not really breathing for themselves, but there is still a little bit of electrical activity in the heart. Uh, there has to be, to, to shock them. I think, unless you're medical, it's, it's a weird concept that we have actually got sort of little bits of electricity going through our body. People had the same reaction when we first discovered electricity in the human body over 200 years ago. Professor Sharon Rustin researches the connections between the literature, science and medicine of the Romantic period. My whole career has really been to try and say that it's not right to think of the Romantics as anti-science because they read scientific books, they went to lectures, they were friends of medical men... um, I'm just always interested in the connections and trying to work out what the connections mean and how they affect the literature that's written. In, in her 1831 preface, Mary Shelley mentions galvanism, um, which was the work of Luigi Galvani, who had found that frogs' legs, when hit by lightning, would twitch. And so he thought there was an, uh, an animal electricity that was the vital principle. But he was very careful not to... Um, 
go any further than that, but his nephew Giovanni Aldini did go further than that, and he started to work on human subjects. You see, science in the 18th century wasn't like today. There weren't any clinical trials, or peer reviews, or control groups. It all came down to experimenting. Richard Holmes is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He's also the author of The Age of Wonder, which looks at the life and work of the scientists of the Romantic Age. The Age of Wonder was an extraordinary period at the end of the 18th century. You can almost give it dates between 1760, 1762 and 1830, 1831. And during that period, of course, it's a great literary period, with all those wonderful poets, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Shelley, Blake, Keats. But at the same time, it's a great scientific period, which I think I wrote the book to show that the two were very closely concerned with each other. For instance, the great astronomer William Herschel uh, was studied by Shelley, uh, and he, Lord Byron, looked through his telescope. And equally, the poet Coleridge was a great friend of Humphrey Davy, Humphrey Davy, the great chemist who became president of the Royal Society. So you have an extraordinary, a wondrous age when the two cultures are not divided, they're talking to each other, writing to each other, are friends. And a great deal of creative work grows out of that. In fact, some of these people were key figures in Mary Shelley's life. Professor Sharon Rustin again. I've always wanted to find out exactly what scientific knowledge Mary Shelley had because there was a, a common misconception that this book is just mere fantasy. So I, I then looked at what did Mary Shelley know, what had she read, who did she know, and her dad, uh, William Godwin, uh, was friends with lots of people who would come round to the house, like Humphrey Davy or um, Anthony Carlyle, who was a, a important doctor at the time. And I kind of pieced together her knowledge and then found that she was referencing certain contemporary scientific and, and medical texts. So, for example, um, Professor Wardman, who's Victor Frankenstein's teacher, the one that he likes in the book, um, his lectures are almost word for word Humphrey Davy's lectures. So she clearly modelled him on Humphrey Davy, who she would have known and and who she'd, she'd read his material. She may have gone to one of his lectures, but we can't be sure of that as well. So she knew a lot about science at the time and there were a lot of things going on at the time that she would have been interested in. Shelley's novel doesn't try to explain how the creature was brought to life, but it does suggest that a spark of electricity was the key ingredient. Ruth Gard is the co-curator of the Spark of Life exhibition at the Wellcome Collection in London. The show looks at how electricity has captivated inventors, scientists and artists. So certainly in the 18th century, you know, the description of electricity would vary whether it was an electric fire or it was a liquid, if it was something that travelled through an ether. There was really a lot of uncertainty about what it even was. And I think, you know, I imagine that a, the main reason for that is is because it's invisible and because, you know, that that sort of lack of materiality that invisibility created a, a huge amount of uncertainty about what it actually was. Here's Professor Sharon Rustin again. So electricity was thought to be something that could resurrect people. Um, and Mary Shelley clearly knows about this. And I mean, it was very, it was very well known at the time. Um, and obviously very controversial as well. 
And Aldini comes to London in 1802 and kind of tours. He does um, so he does a show, if that's what you call it, at um, the London theatres. And the Prince Regent went, and lots of famous people went, where he he tried to animate um, a corpse. And so he tried to resurrect corpses. Uh, and the only corpses that you can use at this time legally are people who have been hanged for murder. Um, and the and people were quite worried about the prospect of bringing back a murderer because um, not only was it a horrifying idea and when Aldini did um, these experiments people would run screaming out of the rooms it was also the fact that it seems as if you were bringing back a, a, an evil person. So this is from Aldini's published account of that 1803 experiment. On first application of the electrical arcs, the jaw began to quiver. The adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and the left eye actually opened. Conductors were then applied to the ear and to the rectum, excited muscular contractions much stronger. The fists clenched and beat violently on the operating table. Vitality might have been restored if many ulterior circumstances had not rendered this inappropriate. And, I mean, I think that that's, we have to remember this contemporary scientific context because I think that at the time people thought you were bringing back a murderer. And so it makes sense in a way that, um, I mean, Frankenstein gets his bits of the body that he creates from, um, he must have got them from uh, charnel houses and grave robbing possibly the only, the only legal bodies he could use would be murderers, bodies who'd been hanged. But he also goes to the abattoir as well, so I always wonder which bits of animal were in, um, in the creature. And again there, I think the contemporary audience would have worried about that. Richard Holmes. I think it used to be thought that there was a great antagonism between the writers, the poets and the scientists and that poem of Wordsworth's The Table Turn, which has that famous line, we murder to dissect, uh, is used to show that uh, the poets disapproved of or hostile to the analytical reductive techniques of science. But in fact, at the same time, slightly earlier than that, on the second edition of the Lyrical Ballads, Wordsworth wrote this wonderful preface. Poetry is the first and last of all knowledge. It is as immortal as the heart of man. If the labours of men of science should ever create any material revolution, direct or indirect, in our condition and in the impressions which we habitually receive, the poet will sleep then no more than at present. He will be ready to follow the steps of the man of science, not only in those general indirect effects, but he will be at his side carrying sensation into the midst of the objects of the science itself. If the time should ever come when what is now called science, thus familiarised to men, shall be ready to put on, as it were, a form of flesh and blood, the poet will lend his divine spirit to aid the transfiguration, and will welcome the being thus produced as a dear and genuine inmate of the household of man. And, of course, he was a great friend of Humphrey Davy. Coleridge was an even closer friend, went to all Davy's scientific lectures in London. Uh, Keats, of course, a medical student. 
um, and was uh, at Guy's Hospital. Uh, there was very cl close and interested relations between the two. Professor Sharon Rustin. I think one of the things that's interesting um, for me is trying to think about how people would have reacted to Frankenstein at the time when they read it, which might have been different to the way that we would think about it now. And lots of my students were always very sympathetic, rightly so, with, with the creature. And then I often say to them, well, you know, he did murder a three-year-old child and he did he actually committed atrocities, you know. And, and they say, well, you know, that's because of how he was treated, which is true. But then I say, well, would, would, would you have done that then as well if you'd have been treated in that way? Vitalism had everyone asking about the origins of life. At the, um, at the Royal College of Surgeons, there are a series of lecture debates given by a traditional surgeon called John Abernethy and a much more radical one called William Lawrence debating this question. Uh, was there a life spirit? Was it electrical? Was it the soul? And Abernethy took the more traditional view and Lawrence the more French atheistical view. All right. So those were ideas which were known to Shelley's group, Mary Shelley, and also to Byron. And we know that in between the dates, fairly accurately, between about June the 15th, 1860, and June the 20th, that there were these series of late-night discussions, and they famously set themselves uh, to write a ghost story, to have a ghost story competition. And this is the beginning of Frankenstein. So when they all got together, the famous bad summer of 1816 on the uh, Lake Le Mans in Switzerland. The main room has a terrace and overlooks the lake. It must have been, when the lightning storms that they had, it must have been fantastic to be there and rather frightening. I saw, with shut eyes, but acute mental vision. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It was fear that meant science was left open to interpretation. At the time, electricity was thought to be an absolutely a wonder treatment and they were trying it on all sorts of things. It was even a treatment for impotence and um, there was an electric bed that um, a doctor called James Graham had um, and people could go there for the night to try and cure their infertility and things. So it was really, it was tried on absolutely every kind of illness and disease. Showman and self-confessed eccentric James Graham was obsessed with electricity. Lydia Sison, author of Doctor of Love, James Graham and His Celestial Bed. Well, James Graham was, I think of him, I think of James Graham really as a very quintessentially enlightenment figure because he, he, was, a, he was a nobody from Edinburgh who made good by taking all the new discoveries and latest developments in in science and in culture and, and, and reworking them, recycling them into something very identifiably his own, which was initially a temple of health. And, and then he became more famous and indeed infamous for the celestial bed, which he put in his second temple of health in Hymen in Palmau. Graham, like many, honed in quite quickly on the sexual associations with electricity. It, they, they were impossible to avoid and really satirists and poets and novelists really got that the moment they saw it in action because the very simplest way you created electricity was using a glass tube which perhaps might be held at a jaunty angle and you would rub it with a cloth um and um it, it was impossible not to see what that could mean it was also referred to as a virtue and a fluid graham wasn't the only person to link sex and electricity in the 18th century, and with the advent of these spectacular demonstrations with electric eels, particularly, I think there was a certain, there was certainly a um, a sexual element to both the the kind of that the eel itself, predictably perhaps, became the source of quite a lot of near pornographic uh, literature, poetry, particularly. Um, where, you know, fairly obviously it became a phallic substitute. And I think the spark was also, it had a sexual element to it. And that certainly gave it part of its charge. Here's Lydia Sison again. And when you went in, it was it was palatial. It was the latest in interior decoration, beautiful Adam's ceilings, um, James Graham used the acoustics of the building very well, so he put an orchestra and a glass harmonica on an upper landing so you would hear this wonderful music drifting down the stairs. The, the scents and the fragrances were needed to conceal the smell of electricity. I think so, imagine the smell of matches. So you, that's not very sexy. Um, but the bed itself was enormous. It was about, it was 12 foot by 9 foot. Um, it had pillars that were actually also organ pipes and 
it had a dome above it and it was this dome that contained the ethereal gases that were then released in, into the bed. And on the underside of the dome, there was a mirror so you could watch yourself and your loved one um, cavorting on silken sheets which could be chosen to best match your complexion. What he was doing was taking all these new developments and constructing the bed with them. So it had, it had mechanical music. Um, it, oh, it also had live turtle doves on bed of fresh roses. And then when you went in, you were just bowled over by the, the vision of scientific progress. James Graham may have been a bit unorthodox, but he's testament to how electricity captured people's imagination. Back to Richard Holmes. Uh, the first edition, the 1818, only 500 copies are published, so it's tiny. It's anonymous. And it's only in 1823, in fact, when Shelley is dead and Mary Shelley comes back to London, that there's a dramatised version at the Drury Lane Theatre. I think it's called Presumption or Frankenstein. And this has huge audiences, and it's a hit. And Mary herself goes to it. She's not paid um, any royalties on it, but she says the theatre's packed out, and she said lots of women fainted in the front rows, which, of course, turned it into a great success. And so, as a theatrical thing, it becomes immensely popular. I think there are 90 separate, since then, theatrical productions, and they continue to this day, as we know. Many adaptations of Frankenstein leave out the parts that make the creature human. And very interesting to point out that in all these dramatisations, the creature doesn't really speak. The creature grunts. Whereas in the novel, the creature has the best speeches. I've called them great arias. They're like operatic arias. Hateful day when I received life, I exclaimed in agony. Accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God in pity made man beautiful and alluring after his own image. But my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even than the very resemblance. Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him, but I am solitary and abhorred. And what's he talking about? Recognise me, give me justice, give me human love. It's a very passionate. And there is a whole view of that novel, which is, is it's about the alien, the outcast, which again is something we're concerned about now. People thrown out of their country, coming, uh, should they be loved, should they be taken care of? It's a very big issue is raised by the novel. Whereas the film tends uh, to make the creature the monster, the creature with a bolt through its head. The book's subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. It's a reference to the ancient Greek deity, often associated with science and culture. The story goes that among the gods on Mount Olympus, Epimetheus and Prometheus were given the task of giving humans the skills and technology they needed to prosper. So the Prometheus myth was a way of looking, as it were, culturally at what would happen with science the far from heaven. And would it benefit mankind, which is what the Royal Society hoped, and was what Humphrey Davy hoped, or would it menace mankind in some way? Which is a question we have inherited, I think. 
And what's one of the amazingly powerful things about Frankenstein, the novel, is it poses this question. In the novel, a thing that gets lost in the films, there's a lot about moral and ethical responsibility. And the great confrontations between Frankenstein, the scientist, and the creature are to do with the creature's rights and what the scientist owes his creator. And so on the Mer de Glace, that great confrontation. Um, and I think uh, that's the element that interested Mary Shelley at that time. And again, we've inherited that, how far we're responsible for um, our inventions and our creations. For Shelley, science is about choice. Ruth Gard. Another writer who we actually feature in the exhibition is um, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, who comes later. He wrote a novel called The Coming Race, and in that he imagines a superior race um, of people who live underground, and they possess a force which he likens to electricity. So in his novel, electricity, again, is a force that seems to have this... Well, it's supernatural. It can sort of kill and cure, so it has that dynamic. And it can be used for a force of good and evil. As time went on and you reached into the 19th century, the association of electricity and death becomes particularly poignant as it becomes a sort of favoured method of of the death penalty in the United States in in 1890 and in in the exhibition we feature a photograph of of the original electric chair um, alongside an electrotherapeutic chair primarily to bring out this dynamic of of its life giving and death dealing um, qualities. Here's Sharon Rustin. There's a lot of interest in the creature as an example of the post-human, um, and that really relates to kind of contemporary worries that we have now about technology and about um, artificial intelligence and all sorts of things, um, because he seems to... The creature um, is kind of superhuman. He's not, he's not actually human. He's... He, he asks a lot of questions in Frankenstein, such as, who am I, what am I? And uh, I always think that he's a different genus of the homo species. He's, he's, he's not man. He, um, he's something else that has yet to be categorised. I'm going to leave you with a speech from Frankenstein about the dangers of knowledge. Learn from me. If not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. In the next episode, we look at the unconscious and how mesmerism and anaesthetics influenced writers. Thanks to BBC Sheffield, for the use of their 1972 interview. The series is funded by the Wellcome Trust. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.